What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm here with Alan Narciss, Chief Operating Officer of WorkRise. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We're delighted to have you. And as we get started, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself. You know, tell us about your life, your story, the path that you've walked to get to this point. Yeah, I'm developing into an operator. I'm a developing operator. And what I found myself working on mostly is is marketplace businesses. So I've started a business that focused in on journalism called eByline. I'm one of the few folks that have worked at Uber and Lyft. So I spent the last six years there and I'm currently at WorkRise. And so we help skilled labor get placed in oil and gas, renewables and construction. I'm a native of Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa native. I'm currently in Los Angeles. I'm still on this journey, excited to keep learning. And I've loved just the time I've spent in marketplaces growing those kind of businesses. Alan, thank you so much. And as we were preparing for this conversation, as you know, Breakline serves three communities, veterans, women, people of color. And as we were preparing, you mentioned that your mom was a military contractor. And I think you said that as a result of the kind of demands of her career, did you move every year of your childhood between elementary school and high school? Is that what you said? So from second grade to high school, pretty much a different school, different place, different city every single year. I consider my mom to be a hidden figure. She's a software engineer. And Mm. she made a great life for me and demonstrated so much hard work and ethic, but we moved every year. And so I'm Mm. from Iowa. I lived in California, New Jersey, Wisconsin. Normally what I say is if I meet someone, I normally have a place in common with where they're from because I've moved so much. (laughs) There's great things about it in terms of adaptability and learning fast and building relationships and building something in common with folks. It's also a challenge in the sense of starting over and understanding what starting over is like. But I'm proud of the life that my mom built for us. And yeah, it's part of the journey and part of how I got here today. Mm. And I'm just thinking about that lived experience. And I think I mentioned to you that one thing that's really special about Breakline is we really care about the lived experience of the folks that we work with because we gain so many skill sets just by facing every day, you know, and your journey of moving so much as a child, I'm sure that you gained a tremendous amount of resilience and self-awareness and, you know, the ability to make friends quickly. But let me not presume, I mean, are there strengths that you carry around with you today that, that you really tie back to that experience of constantly jumping into something new and really having to thrive with wherever you find yourself? I consider myself a learner. And so in work, I've worked in journalism, newspapers, food, transportation. I'm working with skilled labor. 
Before working at WorkRise, I didn't have experience in oil and gas or construction or industrials. And I think that really comes back from idea of switching from seventh grade to eighth grade and math being different and science being different and having to catch up and get right to the point. So in terms of understanding exactly how to learn fast, how to adapt, Mm -hmm. I think that's something I still use today in terms of asking great questions and then also working hard enough to catch up to get to where everyone else is. I often will share with the Breakline community that I'm really introverted. Naturally, I'm really shy. And if there's a party and I don't know anybody, I'll be the one standing in the corner like by the cheese plate or whatever. And so I'm just thinking about you as a child, you know, walking through those doors of the schools every year, you know, at the end of August or beginning of September. What did that mean for you in terms of your social life and making friends and finding your crowd every time? And do you see echoes of that in yourself today as as an adult? That's a great question. I think in some ways, going from school to school, context to context, different communities, Yeah. in some ways, you're kind of a different person or you can reinvent yourself in different mm-hmm. ways. I think that if you've gone into the military or college, maybe there's a new version of yourself that you're kind of creating in those experiences mm-hmm. in the context of the challenge you have there. And so I definitely evolved. I too am an, an introvert or an ambervert. And I think there's also times where you're called on to be more social or more gregarious mm-hmm. or the environment suits you better or you're more comfortable or you're actually finding yourself in a way that you didn't know your, yourself more. As an example, I spent most of the time in the Midwest, but in high school, I moved to Atlanta and I loved it. Completely mm. different city, never lived in the South. And I really consider it one of my, one of my homes mm-hmm. still to this day. And I think I became a slightly different person going Mm. to a different kind of high school with different demographics. So the benefit of different situations and different scenarios is this idea that you're constantly learning more about who you really are and you're becoming more adaptable and it's just more inputs and and more context that you can adjust to, which is great. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you and your wife and your daughter now live in LA. And I think you said you've lived in LA longer than anywhere else other than maybe Iowa. And we were talking about it the other day and you you have really put down roots here. Like you really identify with LA as home now. Is that right? I've been here a long time. You're right. It's the place I've lived the most. And I've really learned about LA and thought about the city in terms of the jobs I've had. So hmm. I worked at the LA Times and learned about the civic challenges of the city, learned all about the different parts of the city. When I worked in my second year at the LA Times, I actually ran Spanish language operations hmm. and learned about the city in a whole way that that maybe people from outside the city haven't experienced or haven't thought about. And then I worked for a movie studio, which a lot of people would associate with Los Angeles and worked in Hollywood and worked with celebrities and worked on motion pictures. Hmm. And then I worked in transportation. And when you understand how the city moves or you understand how the city has challenges and you can actually work on those things to unlock things that help people. I always had a lot of pride in saying that I helped this with this project with this new stadium, or I helped with this venue that you've gone to that used to be crowded or hard to get in and out of, or I've met with this civic leader to talk about this issue that Lyft or Uber could work on. I had a lot of pride in it. So I've not only loved the city and loved the community that we've built around our family, but also 
felt really engaged in terms of the nonprofits I've spent time with, but also the work day to day and seeing the mission and the opportunity to solve bigger problems for, for LA. You mentioned that you started your career at the LA Times and your uncle was actually one of the inspirations for that. Your uncle ran a newspaper in Iowa and you would spend summers working for him. You also called him your mentor. Can you talk to us a little bit about that relationship and about learning about newspapers and journalism and the written word? My uncle owned a small newspaper in Iowa for the African-American community, for the Black community. And he was a known person there, had a radio show. I remember spending time with him and he knew everyone in the city. In fact, I've even met people in Los Angeles who spent time in Des Moines who asked me about my uncle. That's how memorable he was. And he was a voracious learner and a voracious, impactful, passionate communicator who really used his mind to improve the community. Brilliant person, but just wanted to have an impact. And I saw that up close working at his newspaper. And he just sat me beside him and showed me everything, how to sell an ad, how to copy edit. And I remember long nights where I was transcribing interviews or scanning pictures or laying out the paper. And it wasn't just learning. It was learning about hard work and learning how to do something right and seeing the full picture. And I think what I've enjoyed in work, especially in my roles as COO or a co-founder or a general manager, is how marketing and quality and team leadership, these are all things that fit together into one story and one narrative. And I think that seed was planted both at my uncle's newspaper, but also the idea that work is important too. And so how you work and the work that you do together is really a powerful context that you can set for yourself and how you spend your time and how you can evolve as a person. I see that as a formative experience. I think about it often, even in my work today. Mm-hmm. It was so formative for you. You actually, you started a company to support journalists. And then you're also currently on the board of Crosstown LA, which is exploring a new form of data-driven journalism within LA and focusing on telling like a full spectrum of stories. As I think about that, I'm also just interested in the whole idea of storytelling too Mm -hmm. and documenting and being able to see yourself in the written word, in that documentation, in the goings-on of your town or your city you've mentioned your wife works in podcasts. And so I'm just curious about like the role of storytelling to you with that influence of your uncle and then your early professional career. And even to this point today, your your volunteering hours still have a lot to do with that space. You're right. My uncle's newspaper was the first experience and having a paper focusing on the Black community in Des Moines was obviously about representation and I talked to my friends who were featured in that paper many years ago and how much it meant to them and how much it meant to their church and their parents and the idea of representation, but also alternate points of view or a story that's underserved. And that's why I started, I co-founded eByline. That's why I'm involved in Crosstown, because I think this absence of the story is a really powerful idea too, in the sense of if it isn't told, how does that change people's lives? And so... The idea behind eByline was to empower freelancers and and journalists so they could work and tell more stories and earn. The idea behind Crosstown is how do you scale this and help help newspapers 
tell more effective stories that maybe they wouldn't notice without data. I agree that the importance of stories, the consistency of having access to stories from many different contexts and points of view is just, it's so important. Mm-hmm. When you're describing a little bit about your background, as you introduced yourself, you mentioned you're one of the few people who's worked at both Uber and Lyft. And I noticed that as well. And I was curious about it because at least, again, like from a storytelling perspective in the public eye, these are companies with two completely different cultures and approaches. Yes. Was it was that your experience when you were part of those teams? Did you notice how different they were? And if so, in, in what respect? I worked at Uber for more than two years. I worked at Lyft for four years. When I went from Uber to Lyft, I was surprised at how different they were on the inside. On the outside, there's a different brand. The companies kind of do the same thing. But I learned a lot at both companies. And so at Uber, I don't think I'd ever seen a company that was as relentlessly focused in on execution and data. And it was a real strength that I'd never seen in a company in terms of if there's any problem that we see, we can run at it with operations, we can be informed, we can kind of accomplish anything. But before I had gone to Lyft, I don't think I was as comfortable talking about myself as a Black executive, talking about the importance of mission, understanding the importance of connecting with drivers and connecting with your customers in that way. And I, I don't mean to say that we didn't care about drivers at Uber, obviously we did, but it was something that was really important for me to connect with every single person on my team at Lyft to talk about the mission and to connect what we're doing in terms of priorities to that mission. I think that was a step function change for me as a leader to really connect the dots and connect our priorities to why we're even there and why we're trying to solve this problem and why we're choosing to be together and why this company has investment. So going to WorkRise and, and going forward, I think this combination is really powerful. How do you solve problems in a winning way? How do you do it with heart? How do you stay balanced to make sure that your mission is coming through and how you work as well? I love that quote. And you put heart into it. Why did you do that? Why isn't it all about you know the spreadsheet to you? Yeah. I mean, this is something I, I'm still learning and, and have learned. But I really do think this is what moves teams and moves customers. and. I think as a leader, to tap into yourself, it's not just your creativity or your ideas, but it's why. We can choose so many different things. And I think as we evolve in our careers, you want to set the context that can give you the best impact. And so much of that is hard. And so much of that is importance. So I think a great choice for any of us, a great choice for your career is making sure that it's challenging you intellectually. It's also stimulating you in terms of where you should be and how you want to work and who you want to work with as well. That's a really critical balance for me. And it's something I'm still learning as a leader to speak to in terms of why we're doing things and how we're doing things. Mm-hmm. And Alan, as I think about your career, kind of the, the different phases, you had this significant phase related to newspapers and journalism. You had a significant phase related to transportation. Work rises to me, looks like a new phase, a new objective. What was it that drew you to the company? You could have done anything after your years at Uber and Lyft. Why was WorkRise the right place for you? I am passionate about the workers. So at, in Rideshare, I was passionate about the driver. And as I met the founders of WorkRise, I learned more about the skilled labor gap. And the fact that WorkRise was one of the few companies that was taking a technology approach to skilled labor. 
I think we've all heard these comments before in terms of how much we need for infrastructure in the future and how we're changing our mindset in terms of energy and how many skilled laborers we're short of. The founders had that passion and heart about this problem. And the context is great in terms of applying technology to it. And it's a big, important problem for us to fix now in the country. And so as I've heard great ideas, it sparked something within me to spend time on. And it just sort of snowballed from there. And I couldn't be happier with with joining the team and digging into these challenges. Part of WorkRise, I think, is is kind of similar to Breakline when we think about enabling people to have smoother access to work that they're well-suited for and that they enjoy and that pays a living wage. And one of like my driving motivations behind starting Breakline was, why is this so expensive in our country? When you think about our colleges and universities being one of our most crucial channels for getting people to work, it takes a heck of a long time. <laughs> And it can be $250,000 or more, you know, the price tag associated with that experience for a four-year degree program. Were you, as you think about WorkRise, you know, one of the things that I think about all the time is how do we make those connections faster and more efficiently? When you think about WorkRise, is that a motivation for you? Like, we shouldn't be charging people so much money to have access to opportunities that they're already qualified for. And we should be making that easier, simpler, more efficient, and that should be a national prerogative for us. We talk about that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And so the life cycle or the experience of the worker, it means being treated with respect, having safety, earning, having options for the kind of projects you take on and where, where your projects are. But it actually starts earlier than that. And just going back to a comment you made, the data we're seeing is that a lot of high school graduates are considering many different alternatives, including skilled trades. And so we see WorkRise as the beginning of a career, not just a placement or a job. It's the beginning of an evolution. And when we're further along in our aspiration, you can start off and get developed and, and learn skills and get placed and become an apprentice and really further your career through this ecosystem that we're creating because we're creating value for both the clients and the workers. So it's all about creating optionality. It's all about creating value. We spoke about the heart piece. The thing that we talk about is worker first inside of WorkRise. And that means the experience that workers have from the moment they join us throughout every touch point is a great experience with respect and, and options for them. So it is important to us. And we see it as part of a bigger problem that we can help solve. And we know it's going to have a huge impact as we continue to grow the company. I love it so much. And part of the reason why I love it is I think our public policy around the issue of education has been really uncreative, like really one dimensional. The whole thing has been, you have to get a degree, you have to get a degree. Well, if you get a degree from an underperforming institution that costs as much as it costs to get a degree from Harvard, and then you're still not qualified for you know a role that covers that expense that is not a good investment and i love the idea that you all are creating a path for skilled laborers where they don't then have to participate in this loan crisis in the united states of 1.7 trillion dollars of education debt like this is a path to prosperity for people without also saddling them with the burden of debt have you all thought about that? Like just that whole idea that 
it's just all prosperity from here. And the families involved can really thrive. I couldn't agree more. And I think the moment's now. An infrastructure bill passed in, in this country. And we need welders and electricians and skilled labor that can take on civil projects. And so the moment is now to seize on this. I think the point that you made about the options for education and prosperity and how you you feed your family with these options is a really powerful and important problem for us to spend time on and and solve. Mm-hmm. Alan, you're chief operating officer, you're leading a big team, and you also think a lot about leadership in general. And one of the things that you've said is an important part of being a leader is setting a course, but also providing freedom and flexibility. And when I read that, it actually reminded me of something that General Mattis said, and he's also been on this podcast. And I'm going to paraphrase him, but it was something like, we're going to decide together that we need to take that hill, but it's your job to figure out how to do it. And I'm just really curious about this perspective that you have and why that's kind of your North Star with respect to leadership. This is my own experience. When I started my career, I think that I've thought about jobs in terms of right answers and expertise. There's one way to do things. There's a right way. And in some ways, it's somewhat competitive in the sense of, well, if I have more right answers, then maybe I'll progress. What I think I've, I'm learning is, look, I don't have to have the right, all the right answers. In fact, my job as a leader is to set up the framework and the space for my team to have a very good answer that we all believe in, calling back to heart and purpose. I think business is subjective. There's a thousand ways to do things. What is the way that we choose to do things, which is fulfilling for our staff, which weighs in all options, which gets to the best answer, which builds trust, which keeps the integrity of what we're trying to do for our customers. The style of delegating and building a framework where leaders can come up with ideas, feel trusted, lean into their creativity, feel accountability. I've just seen tremendous results from this. And it's something I wholeheartedly believe in terms of expressing that I have trust in, in my leaders. And then also sitting back to say like, hey, like maybe the answers they would come up with are different or better than I would have thought of in the, in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It's such a relief to realize as a leader that that doesn't mean that all the answers have to come from you and actually inspire the best answer by inspiring more participation from, from the team. Yeah. And imagine how stressful that is for leaders to think in a crisis, I've got to solve this myself. I've seen that from leaders that look on their face and the pressure, but you can think of that pressure in a different way. You've got this talented team. They want to solve the problem. They have questions for you about how we are going to solve the problem. And so that we orientation is really powerful for both the leaders that are emerging, but also leaders at the top that, that are trying to get to the best place possible as well. Mm-hmm. You use we a lot, which you know I was noticing even in our prep conversation for this. and it's clear that you take a really inclusive approach to team building and inspiring the best out of the team, which I think is such a wonderful part of the culture that you're creating. You're also at WorkRise, you're responsible for the long-term growth strategy. And so I'd love to hear more about the trends that you're seeing, the evolution that you're expecting in this space over the next three to five years. You mentioned that the time is now, but I can only see it becoming more important over time, like based on 
how expensive it is to have access to opportunity in this country, the debt crisis that Americans are living under, and just the need for more options for how we connect great people with great opportunities. We touched on this a bit, but it starts with the skilled labor gap, and it starts with opportunity for folks with these specific skill sets, whether they be electricians or be capable of working in an oil rig. And then when you compare that to our energy needs, and so in the next five years, 90% of new energy is going to come from solar. So is our workforce pivoting to that? Are we thinking about where we're going to find new workers in the future as well? So when we think about our product, our strategy, our conversations, our service, what we provide to clients, it's really that, that framework. The skilled labor gap is going to continue to be a problem. We need to be a couple of moves ahead and think about, well, how do we bring more people into this ecosystem? How do we make the ecosystem successful? When there is a labor need, how do we match it in the right way at the right time with the best skilled, most reliable worker possible? And then how do we make that system reliable where if I'm a worker working with WorkRise, I can rely on it to make a living wage and it's consistent. And so when we think about balance and our trajectory for the future and what technology enables and what we prioritize and how we provide service, it's really that mix. This is going to continue to be a bigger problem. WorkRise is going to be called to figure out more of this. How do we move steps ahead so we're successful in every interaction that we have? We're talking at the macro level. Have there been any individual stories of success or reinvention within the WorkRise community that are touchstones for you? You know, people that you think about where WorkRise has played a really integral role in in their success. I've been with WorkRise for five months, and I've really loved going to the the sites, and I've really enjoyed seeing workers both on site but also come to our branches and start to fill out that first form because they're they're so full of hope and optimism about what we'll provide. And it gives a really tangible experience. And I love when all of our team members go to the branch and go to the sites and see where the work is actually happening because you can contextualize it. And I've had a chance to take site tours of a couple of buildings that we've we've been building and just have a longer conversation with workers. Why did you choose us? Where do you want to do go with your career? What can we do better? And We have a saying that that's at the site or at the branch is where our business is. And it's true. And it's a source for me to get more motivated to go back to headquarters and say, we need to spend time on this or how are we thinking about that? But that's something that really gets me excited and gets all of our our team excited when we're actually interacting in the field. I love that phrase. And it's it's so true. You have to know who your customers are and, and really be spending time in their spaces. It was actually something that you said you loved about your time at Uber and Lyft as well. And you love LA, but as part of your your work there, you said you spent a lot of time helping to solve city problems. You sat down with the mayor of LA, with the city council, with the folks who are actually making the city run and digging in with them. And that's really different than staying in your office and sort of thinking about what, how they would react to something. Actually being face-to-face makes it so different. When I was working in rideshare, something I would do is sometimes literally put on a traffic vest mm. and go to some of our events and work with our, our staff and our ambassadors on helping solve a traffic problem. And it gave me so much more context. And we've built several new stadiums in Los Angeles. It gave me so much more context 
for how something is going to work when a major event is happening or a Super Bowl or the Olympics or any of the bigger problems we've solved. I remember hearing frustration from passengers about why is it taking so long and why isn't it better? And same thing from drivers, it's confusing. And so that listening has always been really important for me. It's always been important to show my team that I'm willing to do their jobs also. I'm willing to be in the cold. I'm willing to be hands-on on this. And a couple of projects that just stand out are just working on the airport or working on a new venue and and just taking that to the the conference room afterwards and, and speaking about the experience and taking action on it. And I know that's been compelling for the teams I've led to say like, hey, Alan really cares about how this works. That's been just so important to me. And I love when my leaders on my team also take that initiative to really take it to where our, our company works and takes ownership of the experience and takes ownership of the problems that we're, we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. When you were sharing those stories, I was thinking about, so in my mind, you're kind of on your third industry focus. Mm-hmm. You grew up around newspapers, spent a big chunk of your career in rideshare. You're now focusing on skilled labor. And this reinvention to me feels like a thread that started with you as a child, you know, figuring out how to, how to reinvent and start over and, you know, not lose yeah. ground, but like see those transitions as gains. And with Breakline, we work exclusively for the most part with folks who are transitioning from one industry to another. And one of the fears is, do I have anything, you know, to offer here? Like, is my experience as a military officer, is that relevant? Is my experience as a teacher or a banker or a consultant or whatever, is that going to be relevant in this new field? And what I'm hearing from you are a lot of, it's a lot of bedrock. Your statements around know your customer, like spend time face-to-face with your customer, spend time sitting with their problems. And then your commentary around leadership and really investing in your team and viewing problem solving as a team event. And all of that translates. And so just thoughts from you on how much these maybe discrete journeys that we might have at various points of time, how much actually translates over, how much you bring with you. You're not starting from zero. In some ways, it can give you a leg up and give you a head start. Definitely. The way I think of that is if you're going into a new situation and obviously you're interested in that new situation for some reason, there are things from your past that can give you confidence. There are patterns, whether you've been in the military. And for me, I've, I've worked at, this is my fourth marketplace. There are similar patterns or stories that you can use that can help you solve problems. And that's where you draw your confidence from. And you can tell stories about that. I think you also have to know the difference when your stories do not apply and when the context is different and when you need to learn and ask questions and when you need to not make assumptions. I think this goes back to this idea of not necessarily having to have all the right answers. Now, having self-confidence, that is not always easy, especially when you're making a transition and you're going into a new environment. But if you are able to step back and learn and ask questions and create a framework, it's a really powerful tool when going to a new environment. Because maybe that environment can learn something from you, but you have to create the framework and space and conversation to make sure there's the right exchange to solve the problem. So, you know, in some ways, I think this is a a major, major asset, but how you approach a transition will determine how successful you are in that transition. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. And what we see is transitions, not surprisingly, are also moments in time because they're they're fraud and they can produce some anxiety and some questioning about who am I and what do I bring to the table. We see a pretty dramatic pattern of imposter syndrome <laughs> that can come along with these moments where you're, you know, pivoting in one direction or another. And I see it so often that I think of it as a universal human affliction. But I'd love to hear from you. I mean, any experience that you've had with imposter syndrome and navigating through it, you know, or making friends with it, and then the voice kind of quiets down in your head, but thoughts or suggestions that you have around that? I think you're right. It is universal. And I think that the past jobs I've had, you see someone that you think is successful, has all the right answers. You can build a narrative around that. And you can kind of close yourself off to all the possibilities or even tapping into yourself and being present when you do that. And so I think this pathway again to myself, I'm okay. I'm on a journey. When I enter a job or a new experience, there is service to me as well. It's not just myself as a part of this job. There's an exchange. It's got to be healthy. It's got to have long-term benefits for both sides. And I think when you have that context that it is okay, then you can open up so many more possibilities. But I see this journey and this pattern. I've definitely experienced it myself. I think what I'm working on now is how do I help a room get better? How do I move a conversation? How do I up-level a conversation? And let's just say that you've spent time in the military. You go into a new environment, working hard is going to show up in in a major way that's going to make you successful. Asking the right questions, showing up on time being ready. Those are the kind of things that show up in any situation that you can draw upon. That is such good advice. And it reminds me of one of my classmates, Dana Bloom. She says, if you just do what you say you are going to do every time, (laughs) you are in the top 10%. You know, some of this is like just showing up and doing the job and being persistent and consistent too. And we forget, I think sometimes that substance matters so much and is always something that you can draw on in a new space or place. Yeah. And substance always shows up. And the folks at WorkRise would know that I use sports analogies way too much, but the head coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick says, do your job. That's the first part. Um, of of being successful. So yeah, it shows up in such a huge way. And I think you're right. Sometimes we make it too hard. And sometimes the direct path to what's expected and clarifying that gets obfuscated. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that anyone can hold on to in any change is why am I here? What are they asking of me? And just asking that question, just trying your best. Mm -hmm. Do your job. That is so good. (laughs) So important. Has becoming a father made you a more effective leader and teammate? I think so. We talked about the hard part. I think that's something I, I've I thought wasn't as important earlier in my career. It's about right answers. It's about precision. It's about maximization, optimization, all those kind of those ideas. And it's it's more than that because you have to convince people who are different from you and have different perspectives to come along. And to trust you. And being a parent has some of those same concepts. I mean, my kids, they look at you with such high esteem and you take them on this journey of learning and and loving. And 
I want to be the same person at home to the extent that I can be as I am at work. And I've just seen a lot of, I guess, personal growth in bringing the two together and not compartmentalizing them and, and seeing them as, as different things. I think, again, this, we talked about imposter syndrome and evolving and building self-confidence. And I think especially as a Black executive, the idea of being who you actually are is not easy. And I've talked to Black peers in tech many years, and I think this has been a common issue. I think being a parent has made that more okay for me. Being vulnerable about this has made it more okay for me. And it's something I've, I've learned just from, from being a parent and, and not thinking that I need to control or perfect every interaction that I have. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. You just spoke about being a Black executive in tech, and you also mentioned it almost sounded like an awakening that you had at Lyft, where you you started really being comfortable with that identity and being out front with that identity in what sounded like a new way at that point in your career. And there's so much work for each of us as individuals to do to really grow into the full extent of our potential. And that's individual work. But thinking about how do we coach the folks around us to enable us on that journey, you know, to really support us in that journey? Are there lessons, advice, insights that you would have for folks who don't look like you, you know, or don't look like your Black peers, but really could play a role in showing up in a way that enables everybody to thrive? How do we think about meeting each other in the middle on that journey? My path really kind of opened up during the difficult year we had in 2020. And some of my peers asked me to speak to my team about this and to be more specific, speak about my journey and speak about how the events were affecting me personally and my family. And I think before that, I was thinking, no, there's Work Allen. And Work Allen only speaks about work and compartmentalizes the work part. But the reality is these things affect you and they affect you in ways that you can't see. And what I realized was, hey, if I don't talk about this, it's not only blocking me, but it's also blocking my team from being able to talk about it. And this modeling part, and we talked about the trust and and delegation part, but also the vulnerability and the heart piece, it's got to be modeled. And there's small things that leaders can show are okay. There's also big things. And it really starts with you. As an example, so you're talking about something that you're vulnerable about. You want your team to build trust. You want them to trust you. You want to acknowledge a crisis for what it is. A leader can start off by just telling the team how they feel, how she or he feels. And then that unlocks everything for their team. So regardless of your background, building an atmosphere or a space for this kind of exchange or trust by actually modeling, I think is a big unlock for me in terms of my evolution as a a leader. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think about a lot is if something feels hard, that's an indication that we should be talking about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've talked about with my, my team is let's run at the hardest problems. Let's just, let's run at those. It's out there. You're thinking it. Let's just talk about it. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I find is it's after you do it and it's all this buildup, it's going to be so hard and I can't be vulnerable. Then it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. after you did it, which is why the modeling is so great because you can do it more often 
once mm-hmm. you become more comfortable with it. Yeah. But I think that's what made it a transition for me is that, wow, that wasn't that bad. Right. Wow, I have this new thing. The work me and the home me are, are more similar now. And that's mm. way better because I don't have to hold these two different ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if not now, when do I do that? And carrying the burden of not being able to be one one person. Mm-hmm. So it's all those things together that really, I think, make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think your point that that's true regardless of background. If we as leaders can role model the importance of talking about it, if it feels hard, you know, get in there and talk about it. Like big, hard problems don't get easier with time. (laughs) If you're not talking, like it never gets easier. Like time is now. But then to not even realize what that could mean to other folks. And I'm, as you were sharing that example, I was thinking about my teammate, Brandon Self, who's an army veteran. And we're one week or so into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Brandon used Slack to say, I'm not okay. Like, this is so hard. He served in Ukraine. He served in Europe. And just being able to kind of lay it out there for the team and not be burdened both by the heartache that he was feeling and by the need to pretend that he was feeling fine. But then on top of that, to also be able to get the support from the team, you know, to meet him where he was. That was just a recent example that occurred to me as you were describing how we can show up to create an environment where every single person can succeed. Yeah, I think that everyone wants to work in environments like that. And so you mentioned this idea of running at the hardest problems. That's kind of our job as leaders to make sure that's happening. You said that the problems won't go away. I think as a leader, got to be aware of that. Your team is talking about it. They're worried about it. Can they trust you if you're not acknowledging it? Can they trust you if you're not talking about it? So like I said, once you talk about it, it's, it's often not as bad as you thought, but you're getting stronger and stronger as a team every time you set up the conversation or the space or the trust or the vulnerability to talk about those things. Could be minor, it could be big, but at least you're addressing it. And that's in terms of frameworks that a leader can spend time on, that's one of the most powerful ones. What is the most important thing that we can be doing? What's the most important thing that's that's out there that's that's not being said that we have to address, that we have to spend time on? Way more important than being right or knowing all the details. It's really setting the context and, and setting the room up for success. Alan Narciss, Chief Operating Officer of WorkRise, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.